Chapter forty nine, part two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty nine, part two. In 1870 John Camden Houghton engaged me to write a biographical and critical introduction to a collection of Emerson's papers. As the collection was to include early papers from The Dial, I thought it important to communicate with Emerson, who objected to the publication. The old papers were not protected, and Houghton had gone to considerable expense. Nevertheless, the thing was dropped, Houghton being rewarded by being the publisher of Emerson's Society and Solitude. My introduction was extended, and, though not published, was printed, and proofs were sent to the surviving friends of Emerson in England. They were used by Alexander Ireland in his book on Emerson. Not unfairly used, for I had got from him many facts relating to Emerson in England, as he had got from me many relating to Emerson in America. In 1870 I gathered up the experiences of men and women who had known Emerson, among these being Goodwin Barnby, an unclassed Unitarian minister in Suffolk. From his house, Vines Villa, Yoxford, June 17, 1870, there came a letter which presents a glimpse of that period too entertaining to sink into my oubliette. When Emerson came to tea with me at Bayswater he was quite enchanted with the trees in Kensington Gardens. I remember well his frequent question, "'Can you show me any men and women? What life have you got here in England?' I knew well that he was aiming at the being before doing and knowing of James Pierpont Graves. He was after biography. I was for history. I had just returned from the French Revolution of 1848, and had witnessed the inspiration of a nation, and my harmony was jarred by his not appearing to sympathize with the social movement. He afterwards went to Paris, and took up his abode in the lovely little apartment which I had occupied not long before, in a hotel in the Rue des Beaux-Arts, and which I think I recommended to him. There he would have seen something of Hugh Doherty. My impression of Emerson was that he was the most beautifully simple and clearest-minded man I had ever met with. But I then thought that he was too much immersed in biographical ideas, which were, after all, a certain reflex of egotism, and that he wanted social sympathy and its gospel of self-sacrifice to make him a whole man. I have no doubt now but that your great war has made him greater. Alcott I personally liked, but he bothered me with his paganism, as it seemed pedantic, and as I knew it was not original although his expression of it was well-welded, all his own, and applicable to modern ideas. We fair-headed ones were the children of Apollo, the non-multitudinous. What, then, were the dark race of men? Alcott was an unconscious flatterer. He would not be personally unpleasant, but the moment a pleasant analogy occurred he put it into poetic words. Marcus Spring found me out on the strength of my verses, The Hand of Friendship. He and his wife were in London with Margaret Fuller. Mrs. Spring was one of the most winning women I ever met, and I was in rapture with her. 
Several times I saw Miss Fuller in their company, and she appeared very plain indeed. On one occasion I was invited for the evening to a large party, with a magnificent feast of flowers and fruits and sherbet in true orthodox fashion. But of those there I remember only two, the eldest son of Tom, the Inverary poet, a fine handsome boy, and W. J. Fox. Miss Fuller confined her talk to Fox. I had Mrs. Spring, and was I not content? Fox would have liked a quiet hand at whist better. He was fairly badgered, driven up a corner, talked to death. Miss Fuller had travelled far farther than he had from the common ruts of learning and literature. I seem to remember now that it was more of Proclus and Plotinus than Plato, but it came in a shining flow of words, and he appeared to be always retreating out of it in vain. For a step by step he went back, on came the bright waters after him. I can understand how motherhood brought the beauty of Margaret Fuller's soul into her face. The Springs invited me to spend a couple of years with them at Rhode Island, but I never dared to go. There in Goodwin Barmby's memory were the sowers that went forth to sow in the previous generation, and whose seeds we seem to be harvesting at the Liberal Congress some thirty years later. But alas, the seeds had not enough depth of earth. They blossomed brilliantly, but found no fruitage in the field of the world, and in the garish day they wither into illusions. Professor Clifford at times impressed me as a reappearance of Voltaire, and as in Voltaire an after-glimmer of the old faith was visible in his empirical speculations about deity, so in Clifford's conception of cosmic emotion the religious sentiment survived. When I heard that lecture I was deep in my demonology and devil-lore, and enough Methodism survived in me to have no cosmic emotion, but one of abhorrence for half of the cosmos. Especially when the cosmos was killing that splendid man. What were constellations compared to the genius of Clifford? Professor Clifford's ailment was consumption. During its rapid progress we were all under elusive hopes excited by his inexhaustible spirits. In September 1878 it became certain that he could not recover. One day, when my wife and I were on our way to visit the Cliffords, we met Huxley just from the house. His face was clouded with despair, and he exclaimed, "'The finest scientific mind born in England for fifty years is dying in that house.' On entering we found Clifford in his armchair, serene and full of his habitual humour, his wife trying to smile. He had just been writing and showing her a skit after the style of Lucian, which he repeated to us. It represented Christ and his disciples strolling through Hyde Park, and subjected to questions by suspicious policemen. The talk between St. Peter and a policeman was exquisitely comical. Clifford spoke of St. Georges Mivars claiming the favour of scientific men for his Catholic Church on the ground of its evolution from the moral and spiritual forces of the whole world, and also something he had read concerning the superiority of that Church in bringing the humble people in contact with pictures and images. This, he said, is all ingenious and plausible. Families all want some church or other to go to on Sundays. But the man is in doubt between competing sects. The Catholic Church steps forward and says, I'm a pretty woman. Choose me. Clifford's bequest to the world was in a sense condensed in the epitaph he wrote for his grave, where it is engraved, I was not and was conceived. I loved and did little work. I am not and am content.
There was some excitement about the admission into Highgate Cemetery of this epitaph, but such was the love for Clifford that the objectors could not venture to encounter it. In 1875, on arriving in New York, I learned that Charles Bradlaugh was ill, and his recovery doubtful, in St. Luke's Hospital, New York. I at once visited him. Owing to the skill of doctors Leeming and Abbey, his condition had slightly improved, but he was still weak when I reached his bedside. He had been compelled to cancel many lecture engagements, and was eager to sail for England. He felt, however, that his recovery was not quite certain. He had not the slightest fear of death, but remembering the legends about infidel deathbeds, was anxious lest his memory should suffer in that way. He begged me to make inquiries of nurses and doctors whether he had said or done anything during his illness which could be construed into an alteration of his opinions, and desired me, in the event of his death, to bear testimony to the facts. My own methods differed from those of Bradlaugh, but I needed no assurance about his courage. Nevertheless, I conversed with the physicians and nurses, and learned that Bradlaugh had not uttered a word suggesting regret for his unbelief for his career and for the rest had been an uncomplaining and grateful patient. Yet Mrs. Bradlaugh Bonner, in her excellent life of her father, had to record that, although he recovered from his illness in New York, and was alive to contradict such fables, it was actually said that he had sent for a minister to pray with him, and one clergyman was even reported to have specified the minister as a Baptist. As I was certainly the only minister who visited Bradlaugh during his illness, it is some relief to have the legend of a prayer with Bradlaugh fixed upon that mythical Baptist. Nobody will ever suspect me of having ever been a Baptist. Someone, so I was told, asked Frederick Harrison whether Matthew Arnold believed in a god, and was answered, No, but he keeps one in his backyard to fly at people he doesn't like. I remember Matthew Arnold speaking slightingly of Theodore Parker's theology, alleging that his deity was dynamic. But his own famous definition of deity as a stream of tendency not ourselves that makes for righteousness is liable to the same criticism. That which makes is dynamic. In our invitations to the Liberal Congress in London, the word religion was used. Bradlaugh said religion had no meaning for him except as the label of certain systems and dogmas. I maintained in our talks that the word religion, though etymologically objectionable, could alone represent the sentiment all of us, including himself, had for the cause nearest our hearts. The freethinkers also had their altar. When they gave of their substance to build their hall and support lectures, none of them would propose to devote the money to relieve the physical sufferings around them. They believe, no doubt, that secularism, if generally adopted, would relieve such distress, but the Orthodox also included that kind of happiness in their millennial dream. So long as we were devoting our supreme energies to a cause as yet theoretical, we had a religion. Bradlaugh agreed with the substance of my statement, but dreaded the connotations of the word religion. It had been so long and universally associated with gods, ceremonies, superstitions, that its use by a free-thinker would be misleading unless accompanied each time by elaborate explanations. Because of this word religion in our circular, Bradlaugh and Mrs. Besant did not accept our invitation to the Congress of 1878. I respected Bradlaugh's ability and character, but still believed that he was, as was said of the Athenians at Mars Hill, too religious, hence his thunder and lightning. 
and some clergymen recognized this when the International Free Thought Congress of 1881 was held. The metropolitan character of London was shown in its many congresses, and I generally attended them. Large sectarian averages were audible through their delegates, as if these were phonographs. The mass acted quasi-inorganically, and its evolution upward or downward could be studied in a congress. In 1881 the Ecumenical Methodist Conference gave a single hour of its twelve days to the great problems of thought in our time, and even that only to consideration of how they might affect Methodism. The English Church Congress, which followed it, gave nearly one of its four days to the discussion of those problems, considered as to their truth and their bearing on mankind. Such was the contrast between the English State Church and a popularly established American Church. Simultaneously with the Church Congress, 1881, was held in London the Great International Freethought Congress. It was presided over by Dr. Ludwig Büchner. The striking thing was that the Church Congress recognized in the Freethought Congress not an enemy, but another church. In the Church Congress were such clergymen as Sarson, who had resigned his office in a reformatory because of a slight put on Annie Besant. Stuart Headlam, a gallant defender of the rights of infidels, Anderson, fraternal with all men who had ideas, and Harry Jones, the eloquent spokesman of the church contingent which carried its left wing into practical alliance with the secularists. The Reverend Harry Jones declared that secularism was growing by reason of its devotion to human welfare, and that if the church is to prevail over it, it must be by doing more for human welfare than the secularists did. It was revealed in the discussions that some of the bishops sympathized with the spirit which desired to establish friendly relations between the church and every English school of thought. The Bishop of Durham remarked that many past heresies had become present orthodoxies. The sentiment would have been applauded in the Freethought Congress. Dr. Ludwig Birchner was a man of grand presence. Beneath his crown of silken white hair was a face of the intellectual German type with eyes clear and large, and mouth of feminine delicacy. His voice was soft and flexible enough to surprise one who looked at his strong brow. At the close of an eloquent speech he said, Our work is small now, but all things have small beginnings. I trust in the future. Why? Why may not the future destroy free thought as Athenian civilization was destroyed? Because it is a religion, and men like Büchner, Heckel, and Bradlaugh its prophets. The millennial illusion survived in us all. The parliament of religious man was going on. It seemed a chaos of antagonistic minds. But it was only the distribution in various halls of souls whose fundamental unity worked in the watchword of them all. I trust in the future. When we have lived long enough to see what the future brings, we are heure de combat, and our similarly cheated successors think us reactionary. Professor Max Müller, in inaugurating the Hibbert Lectures, for which, though Hibbert the founder was a rationalistic Unitarian, Dean Stanley opened Jerusalem Chamber in the Abbey, affirmed the honorable functions of atheism in the evolution of religion. I had long before taken this ground, and printed a sermon entitled, Atheism, a Spectre. But Max Müller recognized religious atheism as distinguished from vulgar atheism. 
I think he must have had in mind some continental type of atheism consisting in political antagonism to priests and churches. But I doubt if there had been any such type, since Heine said that he had been converted from atheism by attending in Paris a meeting of atheists. Such was the pervading odor of brandy, said Heine, that what reason had not achieved was done by the sense of smell. At any rate, there was no such type in England where the humblest atheists were thinking and reading men and women, and bore bravely a heavier cross than any of their accusers. While Max Müller was delivering that passage in the abbey, I cast a glance at the face of Martineau, who appeared troubled, then at Dean Stanley, who was beaming. In 1880, April, Renan delivered the Hibbert Lectures and on his arrival in London was entertained at dinner by Dean Stanley in his residence at Westminster Abbey. The centenary of Channing occurred on April 7, and though a function in Guernsey prevented the Dean's presence, he wrote two letters which were publicly read expressing highest homage to Channing, and begging that his absence might not be misunderstood. These letters constituted the Dean's final benediction on liberalism, on July 25, 1881, he was buried in the Abbey. Dean Bradley was his successor in spirit. One day, in conversing with him, I inadvertently spoke of the Dean, referring to Stanley, and apologized to Dean Bradley, but he said, You spoke correctly. He was the Dean. Renan was introduced by his friend Lord Houghton to the grand audience in St. George's Hall, which listened to his Hibbert lectures. Through Hogton, as he could not speak English, he apologized for not giving his lecture standing, the English climate having brought on rheumatism. Renan stood, however, while giving his exordium, in this ten minutes showing himself a graceful speaker. His clear, fine voice and perfect French made him easy to follow by his educated audience. The Hibbert trustees advertised as the title of his course— the influence of the institution's thought and culture of Rome on Christianity, and the development of the Catholic Church. Renan told me that the title he had sent was, In what sense is Christianity the creation of Rome? I remarked that the British Channel rolled between the two titles. It was an unintentional coincidence that brought the centenary of Channing and the opening lecture of Renan together. In the morning, April 7, Martineau sat by the side of Renan, and heard him describe the ascending social development of Rome before Christianity got power over it. The sentiment of humanity was springing up, Stoics were preaching the rights of man, thought was free, woman enjoyed a large degree of liberty and equality. All this sacrificed to the ascetic spirit of Christianity. In the evening Martineau presided at the centenary of the great American who had endeavoured under the name of Christianity to recover what was lost by its long arrest of civilization. At the close of his last lecture Renan said that mankind would always behold in the universe the smile of a father, and that smile would be a reflection of their own. A shadow must have clouded Martineau's heart at that thought so sweetly uttered, and I could not but admire the artistic elegance with which he fulfilled his function of addressing Renan on the eve of his departure. He was seventy-five, but never more sparkling and charming. After so many generations since the scientific founder of the Martineau race in England had emigrated from France, 
here was his most eminent descendant matching the finest of french writers with that felicity of manner and expression which no unmitigated englishman of his time attained renan whom i had long known met a number of literary men at my house in bedford park but madame renan who was with him had to nurse him through all the lionizing process her fine english being his means of communication she had endless talking to do madame was alarmed lest this novel experience of receiving universal admiration should break down renan's constitution which had thriven on censure the hibbert lectures of eighteen eighty two were given by professor kuhnin d d of leiden university dr kuhnin then about fifty-four was a tall handsome man with a grand forehead and with his broad ruddy face might be mistaken for a solid member of parliament he gave his lectures in english and although one had to listen carefully there was no fault in his choice of words his lectures were given without gesticulation or mannerism every sentence was freighted he was acquainted with the condition of religious philosophy in every part of europe his general subject was the national and the universal religions he began with a pregnant prologue on the age of darwin this uttered at a moment when the burial of darwin in westminster abbey had set all europe to estimating his discovery was regarded as a judicial summing up of the modifications of religious inquiry by the darwinian generalization i met kuhnin in private and regarded him as a true intellectual brother of renan in biblical and eastern knowledge he had not the poetic vein of renan but was without that desire to conciliate the traditional sentiment so transparent in the vie de jesus april twenty one eighteen ninety five to-day the ninetieth birthday of dr james martineau i visited him and found him wonderfully vigorous i was accompanied by virchant gondy the jane scholar from bombay who was much impressed by dr martineau's conversation on oriental subjects not long before martineau had to address a number of nonconformist ministers many of them orthodox and his tact was as unfailing as ever carrying with him the full sympathies of his audience his latest volume the seed of authority in religion is his ablest work and the one most advanced in rationalism many supposed it impossible that an octogenarian could have written any part of such a book and labelled the whole of it with his prefatory remark that some of it was early work but there appeared in the nineteenth century magazine for the same month his reviews of mr balfour's ingenious plea for creeds and martineau's genius and learning have rarely been happier to-day unitarians throughout the country presented martineau with an address engrossed in an album on whose cover is a silver plate engraved with the martineau crest a martin with the motto marti nobilior palas wisdom nobler than war my south place society requested me to convey to dr martineau their grateful remembrance of his long and faithful services to truth and knowledge they recognize the honor of a career which has carried the best traditions of English scholarship to the maintenance of a higher standard of intellectual honesty, and they rejoice that Dr. Martineau has lived to see, did his characteristic humility permit, noble harvests garnered, or still ripening from seeds sown by him in fields his youth found overgrown with superstition and intolerance. To this came the following reply. 35 gordon square london w c may 5 1896 to the south place finsbury congregation and minister 
Dear Mr. Conway, you will not interpret, I am sure, the late date of this letter as any sign of tardy gratitude to your congregation for their truly generous greeting on the completion of my ninetieth year. So profuse has been the shower of birthday addresses from the many public bodies with which a long life has connected me, that with my utmost diligence I have been unable to prevent their overflow into outlying reaches of time. So cordial a recognition of my life-work as you have been commissioned to send me is the more valued for being based, as I am well aware, not on any party sympathy with the cast of my opinions, but on a common moral approval of careful research, and unreserved speech on all subjects affecting either theoretic or historical religion. The attempt to find infallible records in canonical books and permanent standards of truth in ecclesiastical votes has so hopelessly failed that honest persistence in it has become impossible to instructed persons, and therefore in all competent guides and teachers of men a continued sanction and profession of it is not simply an intellectual error, but a breach of veracity. And this tampering with sincerity on the part of instructors who know better than they choose to say, not only arrests the advance to higher truth, but eats like a canker into the morals of our time. The sophistries of unfaithful minds are as strange as they are deplorable. Whoever smothers an honest doubt creates sin, while missing the precluding good of unbelief. And the conventional outcry against destructive criticism intercepts the reconstructive thought and faith which can alone endure. I can never cease to be grateful to fellow-seekers after God, whose heart is set on following the lead of his realities, and not the bent of their own wishes and prepossessions and far above all doctrinal sympathies, orthodox or free-thinking, do I prize the encouragement which your message presses home upon our common conscience, to hold fast our integrity, and trust the true and the good as alone divine. Believe me always yours, very sincerely, James Martineau. When Professor F. W. Newman reached his ninetieth birthday, June 27, 1895, the South Place Society, which he had several times addressed, passed a resolution which gave him pleasure, and soon after I travelled to Weston-Supermar to pass an appointed day with him. He was vigorous enough to take a good walk with me before luncheon, and although he used a magnifying glass in reading me something I could not perceive any failure of mind or memory, he was serene in spirit, and he was even elated by the honorary degree conferred by Oxford on Dr. Martineau. He took up Martineau's latest book, the source of authority in religion, and read an extremely rationalistic passage. And now, he said, I have lived to see the man who wrote that given a degree at Oxford. There was a tone of nunc dimittis in his voice. Beautiful he stands in my memory, with his happy eyes, the white halo of his hair, his look that of one who had already, on earth, enjoyed his immortality. End of chapter 49 Part 2